This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon will be teaching the message. So, uh, recently went through the experience of sitting next to both my now adult daughters as they went through the process of purchasing new cars in a deal with a dealer. For one, I had to be the co-signer on the loan, and for the other, she invited me to sit with her, to just be there, to help her, guide her. Uh, she gets confused and just make sure everything went well, explain things to her. It was an interesting thing, an interesting experience for me, uh, trying not to take over and direct, but to give counsel and ask questions that would provide pause to think about, you know, taking certain options and certain things. and. Just, uh, it, it was an interesting experience. And sure enough, uh, both girls were thrilled with their new cars until about, you know, f- 10 minutes afterwards and it dawned upon them like, oh my goodness, what have I done? That is a lot of money. <laughs> I have committed myself to how long to pay how much? Uh, actually, both of them, I, I know the look. I've recognized the look. They kind of get a little, like, pale in the face. And, you know, first they were all excited by the new and shiny, ah! and then driving off the lot, Dad, did you think I did the right thing? Did you think this is, oh, my, oh what? The payment's going to be what? For how? Crazy. Tim Peace had that same look this morning. Uh, he told me that his car broke down this week and he had to buy a new one. And so I, I ran into him as I was in my office and I said, hey, how you doing? And he had that same look. <laughs> Got myself a new car. <laughs> I'm like, I know the look. Buyer's remorse, right? We all know about buyer's remorse. That feeling of dread when you realize you've made a major purchase and now you're going to have to deal with changing your life in order to pay it off. I get that way every time I go to the groceries or every time Shannon says, let's go shopping. I'm like, uh, uh. you know, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Why? Because when there's a direct correlation between major life decisions and your finances, There's a direct connection when you make a major life commitment. It's going to bear testimony in your checkbook, right? You get married, it's going to change your finances. You buy a house, it's going to change your finances. You get a dog, it's going to change your finances. You want me to pay what? It's going to change your finances. Any major life decision translates to a change in your finances. That's how it is. And of course, we've talked about money, and we say, well, the reason for that is what? Money is a means of exchange, a means of exchange for the things of value that you put into, typically at work. You earn your money for the value you invest and time you invest at work. That's exchange for money that you then go to use to exchange for things of value in your life. And so money in many ways is a barometer, a measure of how your life is going. And so it's no surprise that whenever you make a major life decision, like a major purchase, like some transition that occurs, it's going to reflect in your checkbook, 
It's going to reflect in your expense sheet. It's going to reflect in your credit card entries. Why? Because there's a direct correlation between life and money. Commitments that you make in life and money. This is borne out with Scripture, isn't it? Right? We've been going through this series on money. We've been talking about generosity. And what did we say? Well, we said that they, if you make a commitment to God, a major life decision, if you make a commitment to God, turning over your life to following Jesus, it will bear testimony in your finances. Matthew 22, Jesus was approached by a man, asked him, what's the most important law? What's the most important law that we've received as Jews, basically, was saying, what, where, what sums it all up? God's communications to how we, should, how we need to live. Where is it at? And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus said, if you want to know everything that God wants you to know to live for Him, they're summarized in these two commandments. Love God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this commitment to love, this commitment to love, if it's a major life decision, will translate to a change in your financial circumstances. It will change in how you view money, right? So why is it that we get squirmy, uncomfortable, bent out of shape, strange, weird, don't want to talk about it, don't go there? Why is it we get weird about it when we talk about money in church? When we discuss financial matters in our faith community, in the community that has made the commitment to love God and to love people. Why is it that we get uncomfortable talking about money in church? Like faith and money are not to be connected. Uh, I don't go to that church anymore because they always were talking about money. Uh, the preacher just talks about money because he's wanting to bump up his salary. I don't know, you know, I don't know about this faith thing because it's beginning to mess with my world. What that means is it's beginning to mess with my, 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 my money situation, financial situation. How is it that we get bent out of shape talking about money at church? How is it that we get uncomfortable with that? Maybe you're getting uncomfortable with it right now. Maybe you're feeling weird. Maybe you're starting to fold your arms and begin like, okay, get off my back, Didi, stay away, right? Well, you're just cold. I don't know. Maybe you're cold. Just, just calm down. If that's you, just calm down. Ask yourself, how is it that I'm starting to get defensive, feeling this way? And just ask yourself, examine yourself, and be open to listen to what Scripture says. Because the truth is, is that if you study the Bible and you study the message that we receive from God in the Scriptures, you cannot deny the issue of money is addressed over and over and over again. You cannot deny the truth that a major life decision like following God will translate to a change in the way you approach your finances. Your finances will reflect where your heart is. 
Jesus laid out the terms of what it means to be his follower when he said in Matthew 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, to take up the cross is really a testament to say you must die to the old way of living so that you can follow Christ in a new way. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Based on what Jesus is saying here, it's clear that living for God, following Jesus, means being open to God with my finances. There's financial implication in the words that Jesus uses he says, what good is it for you to gain the whole world? The implication of that means what good is it for you to acquire stuff, resources, which means money, the way you earn money, the way you view money, the way you spend money, how you feel about money. If you're about gaining stuff for yourself, what good is it, he says, you gain the whole world and lose your life, lose your eternity? Jesus' point is this, to follow me, to follow the way God has opened up that we might be right with him, means that there will be a change, a subsequent change in the priorities regarding your finances. When I open up to God, I open up my checkbook. <laughs> I open up the way I do my money. That's how it is. Why? Because major life decisions translate into major financial changes. We know that to be true. We understand that to be true for buying a car. Well, it's true for our faith commitment, and particularly in the terms of our faith commitment, giving our life to God. You know, throughout Scripture, we see the story being reinforced over and over and over. And here's the story. Whenever God moves in the lives of people, Whenever there is a movement of God where people give their, their hearts and their lives to God, whenever that occurs, there is a subsequent description of a major outpouring of generosity. There is a major shift in the financial perspectives and practices of those who are being moved by God. Today, I'm going to share with you one such example from a book that I don't ever recall preaching from, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is a repeat telling of the history of Israel. You're like, why did they have Second Chronicles? There's First and Second Samuel that tells the story, and First and Second King that also says the story. But now we have First and Second Chronicles, which is telling everything that First and Second Kings and all that said already. Why do we have First and Second Chronicles? What's the point of First and Second Chronicles in our Bible? Well, First and Second Chronicles is a retelling of the history of Israel from Adam to the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. It's a retelling of the story with a purpose. There's an angle to the story. It's written for the purpose 
to remind the Jews who are returning from their captivity, when they're coming back from, 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 from Babylon, they were 587 B.C., they were, were taken into captivity because of their disobedience to God. And, and so when they return, Chronicles is written as a reminder of their history, of a reminder of their roots, of the reminder of how God had called them to live. And the specific reminder is this, don't forget two important things. Don't forget what true worship looks like. In First and Second Chronicles, true worship is centered around worship in Jerusalem in the temple. The second piece is don't forget what true kingship looks like for the people of God, which centers around the descendants of David, the descendants of David. And so you have these two themes running through First and Second Chronicles. That's the focus of why we have that history retold, true worship of God in the temple and true kingship of God's people. Now, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at, 2 Chronicles 31, is toward the end of the story. We're not far from the telling of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., and it catches up to the time in which Ahaz was king of Judah, a time in which the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom made out of ten of the twelve tribes called Israel, and the southern kingdom made up of two of the twelve tribes called Judah. In the time of King Ahaz, Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Ahaz was not a faithful king. He led the, Jew, the, the, tri, the nation of Judah to the worship of idols, and subsequently they received the punishment that was due for such a violation of the agreement they made with God. At that time, Israel, the northern kingdom, was, was utterly wiped out by the Assyrians. They stopped short of taking Jerusalem, they stopped short of taking Judah. And Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, rises to power, and he is a faithful king, and he leads a number of reforms. When Ahaz passes, Hezekiah leads a number of reforms, turning the hearts of the people back to God. And of course, they looked to the north and saw their northern neighbors, and what happened to them? So that was some serious motivation, right? Ooh, God is real, and He will fulfill His promises. We better turn back to the God we, of our ancestors, the God of our Bible, the God of, of, our, of Abraham, Moses, and all all those guys. And so Hezekiah leads a reform. He begins to restore worship of God in the temple. He literally smashes idols and wipes them out. He restores the operation of worship of God in the, the nation by, by restoring the, the ministry of the Levites and the priests. He commits the nation of Israel to start worshiping God in the festivals like the Passover. And in all of this, as revival is in the land, that's what we would say, right? That's what a lot of folks I would hear around here, people that have grown up in church would say, wow, there was a revival in the land. People were turning back to God. People were returning to their, to their faith in God. They were giving their lives to God. There was revival sweeping through the land, and, and the idols were being smashed, and temple worship was beginning to, to go back to where it was needed to be, and, and, and people were beginning to give their hearts to God. What do we find? Well, we find that that commitment was reflected also in a change in people's commitment financially. So let's describe 
the situation here. I'm going to read with you on, on the screen here the story. Hezekiah declares that worship needs to reestablish, but in order for it to happen, he says people need to start giving like they're asked to do in terms of their faith commitment. So it says the king, that's Hezekiah, contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings. This is in the temple. And for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths, that's true leadership. He took lead by offering, uh, giving of his own wealth at the new moons and at the appointed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain new wine, olive oil, honey, and all the fields produced. They brought a great, amount of, a great amount, a tithe of everything. The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, here it is, since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people and his great, this great amount is left over, right? So what do we have happening? Hezekiah puts out a call, an order to the people. He says, start doing what, what, as God's moving your life, start doing what the law requires, producing, giving of your first fruits. What's first fruits? It means that the first thing you produce, your, your first paycheck they give the first 10%. It's not the second thing to be paid. It's not the when I pay my bills, that's what I'm going to give to God. No, it's the first thing. The first thing that they receive in their paychecks, which would have been grain and, and, and produce from agricultural society, they gave it to God. And they gave it to God starting in, in month three, and they went all the way to month seven. So for seven months, they continued to respond to the call to honor God in giving. They gave their tithe, 10% of everything they produced in order to facilitate the worship of God in, in, in Jerusalem, in order to provide for the Levites and the priests as prescribed in the law of God. They gave so much that they were beginning to get piles and piles of extra standing, and the king comes out and goes, whoa, what's, what's all this? What's all these piles? And the priest goes, hey, the people are just giving, and we have enough. You don't hear too many churches say, we have enough, right? But that's what they say, we have enough. Implication being, you need to tell folks, that's good. Thank you. That's good. See, the story tells me the truth, that when God is in moving in people's lives, it translates to their finances. Being right with God transforms my money practices. See, that's what's been illustrated. When the people were right with God, what happened? It transformed their money practices. Major life commitments means major financial changes. What greater life commitment 
can we ever make than giving our lives to follow God? Well, subsequently, that needs to change my financial practice. There is a direct correlation between the exercise of my faith and obedience to God and the commitment, a commitment to the discipline of giving. And I call it discipline because it's not a one-off when I feel like it, when I'm moved by a great video or a great story. No, it's a discipline. It's an action that you take in honor of God. Why? Because your perspective of money has changed because God is at work in your life you begin to acknowledge and buy into and believe the truth that he is the owner and I am his manager. I am but merely a conduit of God's purposes in life, and that conduit, the way it works, is working through the things he blesses me with, which is my money, to which I now dedicate all of it to him. And so when the requirement is, when, when he says, give 10%, it's not a shocker. Why? Because it's all his anyway. It's all his anyway. And to give God 10%, as we said last week, trains me and reminds me to say, oh, yes, God is the owner and I am the manager, which means that I have to also know that the 90% that's left for me to live on is also his and is also meant for me to use for his glory, for his purposes. Because it's all his. He's the owner and I'm the manager. Common question regarding tithing. People say, oh, do I tithe on the gross or do I tithe on the net or, you know, what's left over after all the deductions? Simple answer. Do you want to be blessed on the net or do you want to be blessed on the gross? Look. Tithing is not a tax thing that you're like trying to find loopholes, right? It all belongs to him. The commitment to give is to his. And I know we, get, we, get, we start to think about practical things and the how and the what, and that's important, but understand it's the why that's always important. Understand it's the why. See, 10% is God's baseline. Generosity is the roof. It all belongs to him anyway, and he's seeking us to use it for his purposes. And so if you are a Jesus follower and you have made the commitment to give 10%, that's the, that's the starting point. If that's it, you need to do that. Why? Because the movement of God in your life translates to the change in your financial practices. Just as it would change in, your, in the way you, you, your language and your entertainment choices and the way you operate in dealing with people, it's going to change in your finances. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. The checkbook reflects where you, where, what you value. And if you claim that Jesus is working in your life, yet it has no change on your financial bearings, that's a serious thing to consider and evaluate. If your finances are a mess right now and you're like, I don't know if I can, well, God honors, I believe, the commitment. Start small. Be wise. Be, be, be systematic. Come up with a plan. Add 1% after 1%. And I know that as you do that, as you grow in that, you will be blessed. You are making the commitment to live your life to honor God. And, and God, as the Father, blesses his children. It's a growth thing. So what do your finances say about your faith in God? Being right with God transforms my money practices. What's the testimony? What's the testimony? 
It's a growth thing. It's a, it's a maturity thing. It's a, a development thing. But it is a thing. And we have got to stop making all kinds of excuses and resistances and, and justifying basically holding on to money as if we're the owners in church and recognize that God has called us to be managers. It is His alone. See, God gave you the resources in this world so that you might be His agent for good. And when you, by faith, are obedient to God's calling to use the money He blessed you with for His purposes, what it does is it partners your life into that second part of grace. Second part of grace is that God gifts us and invites us with those gifts to serve so that we make, make an investment in the purposes that He has going on in this world, eternal blessings. Entrusting my money to God partners me with His work. It is the, it's the exercise of, of the part of grace that says, I have been gifted, I have been called to a purpose and be partnered to that purpose as God works in the world. Acts 4, another description of a revival in the land with people, with God's people. All the believers, these are Christians, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. God's grace, he says, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, that was his nickname, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You know, at Mount Carmel, we have this saying that we say we want to be a New Testament church. In other words, if we want to be a New Testament church, and this is the representation of what a New Testament church looks like, it means then we want to be a church where we are comprised of individuals who have made a commitment to serve God by changing the way we approach our finances. We don't work so that we can get. We work so that we can give. We don't manage our finances, making sure we, 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 we're sound money managers, being in, in, in a financial situation where we have options so that we can have more. No, we do that so that we have some surplus to have opportunity to give and to bless others. See, generosity partners us with God's amazing work in this world. At Mount Carmel, we have a number of opportunities and other examples of this where your faithfulness, where the faithfulness of the folks here in, in giving regularly every week and, and faithfully fulfilling the calling for us to, to honor God with our finances and to bring it before, and we don't have the apostles here, but the leadership of the church's feet in many ways to distribute to those who are in need, translates to ministries in our community. A ministry like Interparish Ministries located in Newtown. I think they're also in Amelia. We had the honor this week to uh, sit with the director of Interparish Ministries, and she shared her heart and put into words put into words a story that I think exemplifies the truth that when we open up our finances to God 
and, our, and, and, and give. God brings us into partnership with his amazing work in the world. And so enjoy this. Today, it's getting so easy to get disconnected and not to have relationships, not to communicate, not to listen, not to care, to just be in your own world and in your own circle of friends. We had a young couple, they were 18 years old in February when it was so incredibly cold. They just graduated from the same high school where my children graduated from. Their mother, who was struggling with mental illness, decided that morning these children were not welcome in her home. All they had to their name were a few garbage bags of clothing and a car. And they planned on sleeping in the car that night. So they were looking for a way to eat and stay warm. And they walked in and they looked like a deer in headlights. Their faces were, were cold and they, 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 just, they just showed up and they didn't even know what to expect. The volunteers and the team just jumped up and took control. And they made this young couple feel welcomed. They made them feel comfortable. And um, behind the scenes, we found a hotel and got them two nights in a hotel. And at the same time, we were working with another agency to find them permanent housing. When they left with their groceries, um, the young man was actually crying and he gave us a hug. And he said, I had no idea when I walked in this door that I would have hope, that you all would have this impact on us. Thank you. We think we know all of our neighbors, but hunger is invisible and we really don't know who at any given time is going to be in need. And that's why we keep our doors open. We've been serving the community for over 55 years. On an annual basis, we provide enough groceries to serve over 28,000 client visits. We have 700 new families join us every year. Inner Parish Ministry and Mount Carmel Christian Church are truly partners. It's more than just um, a monetary donation. It's more than just a food drive. It's uh, knowing who to call when you need a little something, something. And uh, Mark Carmel Christian Church is always on the top of my list because they come through and that makes us so appreciative of all that the church does and the generosity within the church. I like that line. So very proud of Mount Carmel Church being described as the church when we need a little something, something. Living for God means being open to God with my finances. My financial priorities will be transformed when I open my life to God. It is an exercise of my faith and trust to turn my finances over to God. He is the owner. We are the managers. Giving my, my money to God partners me with his amazing work in this world. I'm going to ask those who are here to provide prayers 
in person. I'll ask the guys to come on down. They're going to come here, be available to pray with you if you have prayer needs. Alan and Chris is coming down. I'm going to ask that you stand, and we're going to be dismissed from our time together with a prayer. Alan's wife, Luann, is available. Any ladies want to meet with her? You're welcome to do that as well. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks so much for your grace and your love, for treating us better than we deserve, for inviting us into your work and helping us understand that when we have life, we give life. We're to lay down our lives to you, and that means our money. Help us, Lord, to be wise, to be wise in the use of the money that you bless us with, to remember that you are the owner and that we are your managers, to commit to the practices, life practices that indicate you are at work with us so that we might make investments, as Jesus said, in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Thank you so much for the work, the opportunity we have to partner with Interparish Ministries, for the, the work that Alita and her staff do, for the privilege we have to be able to serve those in our community, neighbors, kids that go to school without kids that have no food, that are desperate. Thank you that we can partner with Interparish Ministries and be able to serve in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.